tuning in to another episode of Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and in this episode we are talking to Toby Philpot, one of the puppeteers for Jabba the Hutt and Return of the Jedi. Mr. Philpot is full of incredible stories from Elstree Studios, including working with the rest of Jabba's team, as well as Carrie Fisher, Richard Marquand, and more. This is Talking Bay 94, Episode 7, Toby Philpott. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, I think we're actually talking to Dave Barkley pretty soon, too. So really, at this point, I'm just going to get every job of the hut puppeteer. And <laughs> it's going to be great. It's quite quite hard, you know. Team Jabber's quite a lot of people, right? If you, if you, if you get everybody, you know, all the builders and the designers and everyone, it's we very rarely get all of us together at a convention because mm-hmm. uh, Dave lives in LA mm-hmm. and I live in the UK, but we are meeting in Liverpool in uh, in July, I think. Um, really? Wait, who's all going to be there? Uh, Dave Barkley's coming. Um, I'm going to be there. John Coppinger, who sculpted. Right. Jabber and did the eyes uh, is going to be there at the moment. That's the three of us. That's great. I hope we might get Mike Edmonds, who was the guy who did the tail. But you, you, you never know. It's it's always difficult to get all of us together in one place. Right. I only do half a dozen a year. Right. You know, I've got dogs and everything, so it, it's usually three or four in the UK, maybe one on mainland Europe, and mm. if I'm lucky, one exotic one. And no. last year I was in Mexico City, for instance. So. Oh, nice. And this year, Canada in October. Okay. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of Talking Bay 94. Today I am joined by Toby Philpott, a puppeteer from Return of the Jedi. Mr. Philpott, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Yeah, no problem. So I want to start just very briefly and talk about how you started uh, your career as a puppeteer. And then I know because it started with, with someone very important to just the filmmaking community and the the art community in general and then we can kind of move forward into return of the jedi it's a bit strange for me uh, to be called a puppeteer actually i mean you know the wikipedia entry calls me a british puppeteer mm-hmm. um, my father was a puppet maker and performer and teacher uh, my mother was an actress so i did grow up with puppets but i had no plan to go into the puppet world at all in fact during the 70s uh, i was making my living as a comedy juggler Uh, I was doing circus skills. Nowadays, lots of people are doing circus skills, but at the time it was an unusual thing to do. You know, street performing, I was juggling, riding unicycle, doing acrobatics, fire eating and all that sort of thing. And the reason I say that is because I really wasn't trying to be in the film business. I mean, I had no plan. Uh, What I wanted to do was to be an independent freelance person so that theatre was a bit too complicated. You know, you have to audition all the time and so on. By picking a circus skill and by performing in the streets, I could just go to Germany or Spain or something and and work. So I was kind of an outlaw at the time. It's kind of strange, but my my mime teacher called me one day and he said, hey, um, you have to follow this advert. And I said, why? And he said, oh, it says performers needed for big puppets. And it, then it listed acrobats, dancers, uh, mimes. And this turned out to be Jim Henson and Frank Oz from right. the Muppets. And they were advertising for Creatures for the Dark Crystal. 
I mean, you know, big puppets like Big Bird had been around, but no one had ever done these complicated uh, creatures. And uh, the Muppet performers didn't want to have to do the uncomfortable work. So they hired performers to do the working in awkward positions and with heavy costumes. Because I'd just spent eight, ten years uh, as an acrobat and uh, doing mime and mask work and so on. When I went to the auditions, I was very confident. And it wasn't, it wasn't an audition where they said, come in and show us what you do, because obviously no one had actually done this before. Mm-hmm. So they, what they did was they ran workshops. They would get 20 people in. They would have a few hands and masks and things lying around. And then they would just get us to improvise. And I just, I kind of knew it was, I went, I'm, you know, I'm perfect for this. <laughs> and uh, I swan through it, you know, the... Um, wow. It went from 200 people down to 50 and down to 20. And then they said, we're picking 10 of you. And I was in the 10. And then they said, uh, we're going to pick four people to start now in pre-production. And the other six come back when we're filming. And I got into the four. So uh, as it happened, I I then had a back injury and I I dropped out. Simon Williamson came in and covered for me. But when we got to the filming, I worked on the film literally from day one to the wrap. And... The reason I'm saying all that is because if you mostly if you work in film business, you get a small part, you do a couple of days work and you know nothing more about the film until it comes out. Well, with Dark Crystal, we were in pre-production when they were still building the costumes and and we filmed every day of the shoot. I mean, I never sat in the dressing room. There was always something to do because these were complicated puppets that needed three or four people to work. And each of the Muppet principal performers picked uh, a team of people to support them and i got lucky i got picked by jim henson so as well as my own creatures and background creatures and stuff uh, anytime jim is performing i'm also there either doing the eyes or the um, the right hand or whatever mm-hmm. because he's doing the head and the left hand so he needs someone stuck in his armpit working the right hand <laughs> it's a it's a long you know that's a long speech but i i, I learned puppets and i learned filming from jim henson on the dark crystal yeah, you can't ask for anything else for your education, right? That's that's pretty much that, it. That's yeah. And um, the next film into that studio was Return of the Jedi at Elstree, right? At Elstree, yeah. yeah. And a lot of a lot of the crew simply moved over onto the next film. Now I had no plans for that, but I got called into the office by you know there was there was a, a producer with a cigar, literally sitting there, going, uh, "We've got this big creature in uh, in the next film. Would you like to do it?" And I had no idea h- how this happened. I mean, to me, I I thought, "What? The talent spotted me? What? What is this?" <laughs> but of course, I said yes. And then I right. found out. That it was a feature player. This is not a background character. You know, Jabber is actually, uh, well, he's on the screen for 20 minutes. I don't know. Right. He's, he's a main player. Uh, so I was very, very pleased and proud and all that. I wasn't as nervous as you might think because I had just spent six months at Elstree filming, you know, uh, uh, doing puppets. I was quite confident. And later on, I found out that Dave Barkley had actually got me the job. He was chief puppeteer hmm. and he was asked to pick his team. And that's how I got called in with it, with no auditioning, no nothing. I, just, I was just called in and told I had the job, you know. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, you can't ask for an easier life. Than that. Right. To just getting picked to be in Star Wars and then that's yeah. it. That's and, great. And the thing, about, the thing about Dave Barkley, you see, before Dark Crystal came out, uh, they had made Yoda as mm-hmm. a puppet. It wasn't actually Jim Henson's Creature Workshop, but it was quite a small circle of people. Dave was one of the people that, that got involved with Yoda and was operating the eyes and stuff. Uh, Frank Oz was doing Yoda but uh, again Dave was part of the support team and 
in certain shots, in some of the wide shots, Dave is actually operating Yoda because Frank had gone off to do some Muppet stuff. So Dave was not only a puppet builder, but also a performer. And it's kind of odd. George Lucas and Jim Henson were working quite closely together at that point. I like to think that The Dark Crystal was kind of a showcase of what else you could do. You know, they'd done Yoda. Yoda was so successful right. that I think Jim was inspired to go, what else? Wow. You know, the, uh, the Dark Crystal is almost a showcase of animatronic possibilities uh, of course then Jabra was the kind of ultimate um, <laughs> result of all that work mm-hmm. um, the builders that made Jabba had some of them at least had worked on Dark Crystal uh, John Coppinger for instance who sculpted Jabba mm-hmm. so we were quite it was quite closely integrated both the the, the, the Muppet circuit of p- performers and the builders and of course it's almost entirely an English team no, a British team, anyway, because people think it's an American movie, Star Wars. But, you know, in fact, quite a lot of the shooting was done at Elstree. Yeah, the voices do get dubbed and the accents get changed. Right. <laughs> but essentially, Jabba's Palace is a, is a, is a British production. You know, they're right. all background characters, all the, all the crew and everybody are, are British. We didn't go to the desert. We, we're just doing all the interiors for Jabba. But uh, anyway, so that's that's the long and the short of it. I was working at Elstree. I'd never been in films or intended to be a puppeteer and landed, got lucky and landed on my feet, you know. Yeah, and gotten two of the biggest <laughs> movies of all time. So uh, that's great. Uh, so on set at Elstree, yes. kind of what was the process? You know, that, that was a huge team of puppeteers mm. and, you know, bringing Jabba to life. And so before even cameras started to roll, was there yeah. kind of a process y'all did to familiarize each other, you know, with you know, performance styles or how did you get on, you know, as one body, if that makes sense? Well, yeah. Um, first of all, he was still being built. Mm-hmm. So although we went in for fittings, we didn't get much time to actually practice in him. I say fittings in the sense that we would get inside and go, that's a bit uncomfortable. I can't <laughs> move that, you know, and um, they would settle us in. But we had very little rehearsal time. And in fact, it was still being painted up to the last minute. They were they were panicking because they were going, you know, uh, everyone's ready to go with the palace scene. And if Jabba isn't there, we can't do any of it. We more or less walked into Jabba's palace, climbed inside Jabba and started working seriously (laughs) now first of all he looks fabulous so you've only got to move him around a little bit and he comes to life we were all very experienced at this process the way you've got to imagine this is it's a two-person submarine dave barkley and i are sitting inside the head body part of jabba my left hand is jabba's left hand dave's right hand is uh, jabba's right hand and with our inside hands david is doing the mouth and all the dialogue in english through speakers on the set and uh, my inside hand is the my right hand is uh, moving the head around it has one or two controls and it also does the tongue yeah. I let the head and I, you know, my hand is inside the tongue the two of us are the main performance now what brings him to life are the eyes and they were radio controlled by one of the um, builders who's out on the set. He, he could talk to the camera crew, he could talk to the director, and over the headset he could talk to us to right. how, how effective our performance was because we couldn't really see anything. You know, nowadays you'd have a pinhole camera and a little, you know, thing. But in 1982, when we did this, we had, hanging from our chests, we had these great big chunky monitors with a four-inch black-and-white screen um, just showing a kind of, you know, like CCTV, like like um, a grainy picture of Jabba. We couldn't really see what the shot was, and, uh, you know, we were working almost blind, which was awkward because when we worked with the Muppets, they, they are very aware of 
puppeteers and puppeteers needs so when it however uncomfortable we were on dark crystal we could always see a monitor that was showing the actual shot that we were doing the actual through the lens shot so you'd know if you were in the corner of the frame you'd know if you were close up so on star wars of course they had no um inclination to spoil the puppeteers by making it easier for them <laughs> so we were mostly working with feedback from the guys operating the eyes telling us I mean, you know, we could roughly see what was going on, but that's all. And they had to describe what the shot was, how close up we were, because we had no idea really where the edge of the frame was. So if you make gestures, you don't really want your hand to go out of shot and things like this. So it was almost done verbally, those those things. And of course, you rehearse and uh, you, you get feedback from the director and so on. But what we asked the director to do, and this is a trick we got from the Muppets, was to talk to Jabber as though he's an actor. You know, just as though he had Marlon Brando there. Mm -hmm. Just talk to Jabber, because that means when we answered, we were still practicing Jabber. We were practicing the gestures, the voice. And after being told what the director wanted, we would then answer as, as Jabber. OK, you know, we'll, we'll give it a... <laughs> but then when he went off to do his lighting and the other checks, we would then rapidly rehearse the moves with feedback from the outside and talking to each other inside and then go for it. So a lot of the shots that you see, um, you know, were pretty much made in the half hour before the actual shooting. Um, we had a script. But if you, you don't have the gestures, you know, you don't you don't have the movements that you're going to need. And yeah, it, it, it sounds funny, but we we literally did perform him almost live like that. Occasionally we'd, we'd go out if there was something awkward, like with uh, Ula, the dancing girl, uh, she's on a chain. OK, we could we could hold the chain between the two hands and then we would have to work out uh, the angles that we we're going to pull out and things like that. And we would go out and talk to the performers. We, you know, we'd go out and talk to Carrie Fisher. We'd go out and talk to Ula, uh, Femi Taylor, to explain that we couldn't see very much and we're working pretty well blind. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. I had to hit Anthony Daniels in the C-3PO costume. Mm -hmm. So first of all, a stuntman can't fit in that costume. It's built for him. So it's going to be the real actor that I'm going to hit. Right. Okay. So that's potentially dangerous. You could up interrupt shooting by injuring him. And we talked to the stunt arranger and we said, we can't see what we're doing. And Anthony said, well, I can't see what I'm doing. So that's two of us working blind. So we had to block it. We had to mark out the spots. Uh, I had to do a, a, you know, like a, a hit gesture, but stopping. And then they shot it from a low angle so that... I actually miss him by, I don't know, three or four inches, whatever. Mm. And it's just three, two, one, go. And I do the gesture and he falls backwards. Things like that, we had to coordinate quite a lot. And it probably took a whole morning that and probably only did two takes, maybe. Um, lots of preparation. Um, so some of it's improvised on the day. And if you can get it right in one shot, they love it. You know, sometimes you really have to think it through very carefully. So <laughs> Uh, were there any other kind of challenges, I guess, like with Jabba, there were, like, as you mentioned, the the hit of C-3PO or like the eating of the frog. I think there's a lot of different things that Jabba really had to do besides just move and, and move his mouth. So maybe there was, was there anything coordination wise or, or planning wise that you had to do to maybe do some of these quote unquote stunts almost for Jabba the Hutt? Well, yeah, I, I, I do most of the moves because Jabba's right hand is over his body and over the tail. Right. And David was anyway focusing on the dialogue. As I say, he was, you know, he was actually speaking Jabba's words. It, it all got, you know, changed afterwards. But uh, on the set, he was doing the dialogue in English 
for the other actors. But uh, yeah, Jabba's kind of basically left-handed. I get to smoke the pipe, eat the frog, hit C3. Right. You know, it's like... Um, uh, yeah, I think the frog eating is a fairly good example of how complicated it could be because what it involved was me reaching down, grabbing the rubber frog. Obviously, there's a live frog in the hooker, but in, they had a rubber frog to give me. They would shove that into my hand out of frame and I would bring it up. It starts by me tipping the head down and the eye guy is moving it so he's looking down to where the frog is. Mm -hmm. I'm tipping the head with my inside hand and reaching down with my uh, left hand and I'm bringing the frog into frame as I square the head up. David's opening the mouth. I put the frog in. David starts chewing. And while he's chewing the frog, I put my hand in the tongue and then lick the lips. So between us, something like that was quite complicated. And you have to understand that the the slime and, and goo that you see in his mouth and nose really was slimy. So <laughs> after the first take, the frog was then slippery, like holding soap in the bath. So I'm grabbing onto it with my three-fingered hand and, and desperately trying to, you know, just shove it in the mouth. And, and I'm still thinking, oh, I've got to then lick the lips. And so we had no idea what it looked like from the outside at all. It, it was... Um, and you're on a film set where there's a lot of people uh, waiting for you to get it right. It's not like just being an actor. You know, you can you can get it right and one of the other people on the team can get it wrong because mm -hmm. just for instance, if you move the eyes without the head, it's very different from moving the head and the eyes at the same time. So Jabba's minimum team would be me and David and one or two people outside with eye controls and facial features, gestures and stuff. But we, if we had Mike in there, he was doing the tail on a wide shot. We occasionally had guys underneath uh, doing things. Sometimes it could be six people trying to coordinate into one, you know, overall move, if you want. Uh, well, we, we got it. It's it's a bit strange because you hang around for hours on a film set while they do lighting and sound checks and this, that and the other. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly they go, right, we're going to go for one now. And, uh, you know, somebody shouts action. And you've got 10 seconds or 20 seconds to get it right. And if you do get it right, that's going to be in the film forever. Right. So no pressure. <laughs> I, I used to compare it to, to being a 100-meter sprinter at the Olympics. You know, you spend four years training and you get there on the day and you've got 10 seconds to get it right. So you go from bored and hanging about to uh, uh, everybody waiting for you to get it right. And if they don't like something and it could be you could do it perfectly but then the lighting could be wrong so then you have to do it again you have to start all over and you have to get your bit right over over again you know and uh, if if you've got a good director nobody gets blamed for things going wrong but you know um it it's a it's a strange process filming to be honest this is where having worked on dark crystal helped me relax because i realized in a 10 hour day you're getting two or three minutes of film maybe mm-hmm you know, like a finalized film anyway that, that gets used. But it was very exciting. Um, what I missed most was uh, not seeing the performance. One of the things that Jim Henson liked was that all the puppeteers would go to the rushes. At the end of the day, you could go home if you wanted to. There was no, you know, your work had finished. But when he went to watch the, the rushes, the, the previous day's film, he invited everyone to go if they wanted to. So it was quite a social event. They, they had a little cinema at El Street and there would be 50 or 100 of us in there watching all the footage from yesterday, you know, all the outtakes and all the bits and pieces. But you could watch your own performance and you could learn something. Now, I, I never got uh, Star Wars is much more secretive than that. Uh, I never got invited to the rushes. Right. So I literally never saw my Jabba performance until I saw the film. 
I was quite impressed when I. Oh yeah, of course. Hey, wait, that that looks quite good. <laughs> one of my one of my favorite scenes uh, of Java is actually Java's last scene, right? The right. the yeah. death of Java. Uh, was there anything? Was that filmed chronologically? Was there anything that y'all did to prepare specifically for the death of Java, since it was probably a little bit different than just his normal? movements um yeah it was the third set that we'd done we most of the most of it was done in the palace some of right, it was right. done in the little alcove when han solo comes out of the carbonite uh and then we were on the barge scene uh, yes it was filmed in sequence partly because we thought jabba might get damaged in the process okay. of being killed especially the skin mm-hmm. latex skin and a chain you know it was likely to uh, to get ripped we didn't really change our performance approach but there are one or two other things that happened that we hadn't planned for making his eyes bulge so right. uh, puppeteer called mike quinn uh mm-hmm. was inside with me and david just literally pushing the eyes to bulge and wow <laughs> physically knee numb yeah mike quinn knee numb yeah knee numb yeah um but you know he's part of our little circle of puppeteers uh the tongue as well although i'm flapping the tongue around at the beginning when he actually gets strangled, you'll see it inflate. There was actually a balloon inside it. So oh, wow. I didn't see it. I'll have to go back and watch. And, yeah, generally, we were just thrashing everything about, everything. Tail. Uh-huh. To start with, Mike uh, Edmonds was working the tail, but I think at some point towards the end, the tail's actually on an invisible thread. Um, in the, the tip of it is thrashing about. It's someone up in the, up in the, you know, in the roof waving it about. I'm not sure because I was inside and I didn't have to <laughs> deal with that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they they checked out that we were going to be safe, uh, of course. And there's a story that goes around that, that when Carrie Fisher jumped over the tail, she stepped on Mike Edmonds' head. Well, I've asked Mike Edmonds and he said, no, ne- never happened. Um, but certainly the story went around and it may be that, that she tore the skin and Stuart Freeborn needed a few minutes to fix things up, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how the story went round. I think Mike's the one who ought to know whether he got stepped on or not. Well, you you have a story with with Carrie Fisher, I've heard. You see, that's another one of those ones where I couldn't see what I was doing. So mm-hmm. I believe what people tell me, but I've never seen the footage. <laughs> Simply speaking, when, uh, when, uh, when Han Solo comes out of the Carbonite, and the Mooring guard drags Carrie Fisher over to Jabba. She's flinching back, and, and Jabba sort of waggles his tongue at her and so on. And that's how you see it in the film. Well, when we were filming that bit, the director said to me, um, yeah, can you, can you just stick the tongue out and kind of, you know, waggle it around in a nasty manner? And it was all covered in this gunk, this, this horrible sticky stuff that we painted on between each shot. And, I, and you know, we did an action... Uh, he said, action, I do a take. Uh, then I heard on the headphone, he, he kind of broke the rule about just talking to Jabba. He was actually whispering. He said, Who, who's the guy doing the tongue? And I said, it's me. And he went, can it, can it reach out any further? And I said, well, yes, but have you warned Curry Fisher that we're changing the blocking? Because, you know, when you rehearse these things, you... you, right. you he went, no, no, I want a spontaneous reaction. I, you know, <laughs> let's just go for it. And so they go, you know, three, two, one, uh, action. And I reach the tongue out and I wheel it about. And there's a little kind of, whoop, uh, cut. And uh, stops, and then no one speaks to me. And they say, "Look, we're just going to do one more, a little bit less this time, a little bit less." And that's all I knew at the time. Now, when uh-huh. I came out later, I said, "What was? Why? What? What happened to the second take?" And they said, "Oh, you you licked her face with the." <laughs> now, you see, this may be true, but I've never seen the footage. Right on film sets, 
people are are pranksters they will wind you up right <laughs> so and I, I just kicked myself i never actually went to a convention um and asked carrie fisher because she's the person who'd know <laughs> so you mentioned it very briefly when you were telling that story uh your relationship with richard marquand all the puppeteers relationship with with marquand was yeah. kind of as Jabba, right? And kind of making sure that Jabba came to life. What was the decision process behind that and, and why and how did that inform the character? As I say, it came from uh, Jim and Frank's approach to puppets, that puppets mm -hmm. should never be seen as dead. They should never be photographed uh, just lying on a counter or, you know. And you'll see if, if you watch either of them being interviewed on TV, for instance, that the interviewer will always talk to the puppet. And it isn't, you don't have to tell people this, uh, even if the puppet is sitting there and he's not a ventriloquist or anything, but uh, really good puppetry, the, the thing comes alive. Children particularly, you know, just, just talk to a puppet and spontaneously. But it was just, it was easy enough to tell Richard Marquand that, but from his control point of view, he, you know, he he didn't resist it, but he kind of went, well, yeah, um, you you know, is it, you're asking a grown man to treat to treat a puppet as a living being, right? Right. Uh, and it it's a little uncomfortable to start with, but eventually uh, he got into it, and it was easier for him because he didn't have to analyze the performance. He just said, "What I want is this. I want you to be angry. I want you to look this way." I want you to, you know, uh, threaten Carrie Fisher or whatever. But he would just explain it like you would to an actor. And then our team had to decide how best to do that and then offer him versions. Because, um, as I say, it, it's quite complicated if you can't see what you're doing. They would say, do a big laugh, for instance. And David and I would, uh, you know, uh, rock it around inside and, and wave the arms. And then the guy doing the eyes would go, that's hardly showing because, you know... It, there's a layer of fiberglass, there's an airbag, there's a latex skin. And we would start flinging ourselves around. If you if you could see what was going on inside Jabba when he's doing some of his bigger moves, like when he's dying, for instance, uh, it would be hilarious because we were literally hurling ourselves about in there because the, the costume itself reduced the scale of the movement that we were doing. So, yeah, things like that. Um, we, we would do our rehearsals, then offer it to Richard Marquand, and then he would go, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you make it bigger? Can you, you know, um, working within the limitations of the puppet, but doing it as though it was within the limitations of the actor, Jabber, rather than the, you know, because we, it was a great puppet and it was very expressive, but he, he hadn't, he hadn't, he'd storyboarded it, you know, but he hadn't, actually being confronted with a puppet like that with most of the actors on the on the set he could still direct them like an actor but with Jabba being the focal point for well as I say 15 minutes on screen or something I've never timed it but quite a lot of the scene is dominated by Jabba and it had to work he he grew to like it I think Richard Mark and I, I think George Lucas was always a little bit um not disappointed but you know he wanted a CGI Jabba he didn't particularly want right. a magical one but it was too primitive at that point, the CGI uh, process. But I think Richard Marquand kind of uh, grew to like us. <laughs> That's good. He you know, gained confidence, you know what I mean? He, <laughs> must, he must have been watching the, the, the rushes and going, yeah, this works, this is good. Well, let's talk about that for, for a split second, just because you did mention like George and his relationship with CG. And I think it can really be seen in kind of the Java character progressing through the special editions or the prequels or whatever it is. And yeah. in my opinion, it's worse, right? I think there's nothing that can replace that 
that physical kind of very real um, thing you can kind of almost reach out and touch, right, with the Return of the Jedi Jabba. Yeah, um, sure. And I think now with the new uh, sequels, like the Disney movies, there has been a return to the the physical and the animatronics and the puppeteers. So yeah. kind of how have you seen that evolve over the years? The the first, the the puppeteers to the CG and then just the return back to, to puppeteering. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, because I, because I grew up with mm-hmm. puppets, right. I knew that they're magic. And, you know, for instance, the first time I saw Yoda in, uh, I didn't think, is that a little man in a mask? Is that a... Pu- right. I didn't. It's just Yoda. He's alive. You know, I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, the original Yoda is simply a living being. You, it never crosses your mind how it's being done. You know what I mean? Because he's so charismatic as a character mm-hmm. uh, in the original trilogy. So th- that demonstrates how powerful uh, the magic of, of a practical effect can be. It shouldn't even cross your mind uh, how it's being done. Because that means the illusion's gone, doesn't it? If you if you're thinking about the trick, then then it's gone. So um, yeah, for me, having worked on Dark Crystal, where very specifically Jim wanted everything done for real, pretty much everything. There were one or two effects in there, but they're just you know the post production simple. Things. To me, Jabba looks he looks as though well, first of all, he does weigh half a ton, so he looks like he's got weight, and CGI right. never seems to have any weight in it. It's it's too light, it's too clean. Jabba looks as though he sweats and smells and is disgusting to touch. Do you know what I mean? He looks he looks uh, unpleasant. Um, the CGI that they put on New Hope is simply bad graphics. I'm, I hope one day they'll improve that. They wanted to use that early Han Solo right. footage, so yeah. they you know I could see why. But the actual graphic is awful. It doesn't look like. Um, no. Return of the Jedi Jabba at all. Now, in Phantom Menace, they got it a lot better. It looks a lot more like Jabba. However, it's still... He doesn't really interact with actors. He's on the screen. Um, there's no real sense of weight or three-dimensional presence. And naughty things they changed as well. I'm, mm-hmm. Sorry, no, yeah. this is a personal thing. <laughs> Jabba's hand is actually a three-fingered right. uh, thing, right? Uh, it, in Phantom Menace, they've they've made it the Disney hand, three fingers and a thumb, mm-hmm. so he can point. And an opposable thumb is too human for me. Uh, that you know, we we made right. a very alien jabber on purpose. Most people don't notice this, but you know, yeah. once you spent your time thinking once you're about it, at, his actual working, hand, you 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 notice it. Well, yeah, because we had to work out when you're doing uh, a three fingered hand, you you have to decide not only how to pick a frog up, but how do you point? Do you point with the middle finger? Do you point? You know, because it's not a it's not a, a human hand. So yeah, Phantom Menace looks okay, but it has no real weight and CGI for me. Right. I can't look at it for too long. If it's not on screen very long then you can get away with it. I mean, uh, the example I always give people is that when I first saw Jurassic Park, I was wildly impressed because the velociraptors and things like that, it all happened quickly enough and it was mingled with practical effects, with real creatures. And it never crossed my mind. This is the thing. If you're not thinking about how the trick's done and you are simply involved in the story, CGI is fine. I I really don't want to look at CGI too long because my brain then analyzes it. Mm -hmm. Because I used to do magic as well, I'm a backstage kind of a person, so that my brain very quickly goes to, <laughs> yeah. how are they doing that? Or you know, And I don't want it to occur to me, so that 
the great thing with the practical effects is that there's nowhere to go for that. You don't, people don't, most people have no idea that Jabber is, you know, uh, half a dozen people working. He's simply a living being and it doesn't cross their mind. Now, younger people who play a lot of computer games don't seem so bothered by CGI because they spend a lot of time with their brain converting CGI images mm -hmm. to reality, you know. I mean, for example, when I was growing up, uh, stop frame animation from the 30s looked quite clunky, you know, Ray Harryhausen mm -hmm. and King Kong and things. Uh, at the time, it freaked audiences out completely. It's quite possible that um, kids using Blu-ray now think that our Jabber looks a little bit rubbery and, you know, you can see the joins and all that sort of stuff. They may prefer CGI. Having gone to quite a lot of conventions, I can only say that 90-something percent of fans prefer the practical effects. Of course. The, the real Yoda and the real Jabber and everything. So it is an opinion, you know, it's, it's only an opinion, but I do, I do prefer the practical effects and I, I'm not, not alone in that, apparently. <laughs> you are definitely not alone on this podcast either about that. Um, I do think the, the sequel trilogy has been good about, you mentioned it like Jurassic Park, blending the practical and the computer generated, because that, that adds a, a realistic element to if you wanted to use CG to extend something, it makes sense. Um, I will say, I don't know if you've seen... Um, solo yet the new the newest one uh, no, no. Uh, but there is a reference to Jabba and so if they do continue to make solo movies I would anticipate now that they've returned to this puppeteering and this focus on animatronics that yeah. if Jabba does make a return appearance it will be as as a puppet that would just be my my guess we'll see if that plays out in the next few years but I would yeah, hope. well, yeah, but lots of people ask me about that as though I was being secretive, you know, and I was, uh, you know, if I was secretly working on solo. Right. <laughs> uh, no, they haven't invited us. They wouldn't necessarily need the same team of builders and performers. Mm -hmm. Out of nostalgia, they might find it amusing to, you know, the fans might like it if, if it was getting the old team back together again. Mm -hmm. But I, I certainly haven't heard anything about it. I mean, for a long time, we were going, you know, is he going to be in Solo? And, right. and now he's referred to it, but right. he isn't actually in it. I'm not holding my breath for the phone to ring. <laughs> <laughs> it would be fabulous. You know? yeah. I mean, wouldn't it be I, fantastic? Yeah, I'll, I'll start the petition. Because I, really, I think they, they have made an effort, right? Even with, like, that they showed the Dejaric chess scene in Force yeah. Awakens. And they got Phil Tippett to come back. And, and yeah. then... Um, Frank Oz, of course, came back for Last Jedi, right, with the mm -hmm. puppet Yoda. So I, the precedent has been set, uh, especially with a character like Jabba and such an iconic kind of team working on Jabba. Um, yeah. It would just be a, a cherry on top. But um, with that, uh, that's, that's at least the questions I have for Return of the Jedi. I would love to talk for a second about your other films and work after Return of the Jedi. I mean, things like Labyrinth and Shop of Horrors both iconic things that you were able to work with. And, and specifically, one of the things I want to talk about was your puppeteering work on uh, Roger Rabbit, because I think yeah. a lot of people wouldn't think about puppeteering as part of the Roger Rabbit kind of, you know, think animation. But but maybe we can talk about that for, for a moment. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, the, the 80s was, was kind of a funny time for me because, because I'd been a solo um, circus performer. Mm -hmm. and street performance stuff. Um, when I got into the films, the first thing I had to do was get rid of my any any uh, recurring contracts that I had, which would tie me down, mm -hmm. um, you know, to be available at short notice for films. And then, of course, you sit around for months and, and don't get a phone call. 
So uh, it was kind of a up and down. When I got film work, I then had enough money to take the rest of the year off, yeah. you know, and go and live in Spain for a few months or whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, this is before mobile phones. This is before any uh, easy way of communicating. And if you have an agent, of course, an agent can be, have an office and, and monitor things. Not having an agent meant that if I did go and live in Spain for a few months, I literally was out of touch yeah, with the with the UK and the right. film business. So it was a bit odd for me, yeah. The the reason I'm saying that is because I got on to uh, Little Shop of Horrors because it was Frank Oz's first solo directing job. Right. And he wanted puppeteers he'd worked with and knew. So it was pretty well a shoo-in, you know. I mean, I heard about the job and I went for... An, uh, it wasn't really an audition. I just really went in for an interview and, and they, they were hiring, a, you know, a dozen puppeteers. So that was kind of easy to get into. Labyrinth, however, was when I came back from Spain and I was I was teaching some kids in, in Cardiff, uh, where I now live. Mm. Um, I was teaching circus skills. And they said, but you worked on films? Oh, wow. You know, all this. And I went, yeah, but that's before that, you know, the phone stopped ringing. And they said, you should let people know you're there. So I rang the uh, Henson organization office just to say, okay, here's my contact uh, address and phone number. And they said, oh, we've just finished casting a film, actually. And I went, oh, oh, I missed it, you know. And they said, oh, but we actually need, we do need some goblins next week. Um, Are you free for a week? Can you just come down to London for a week? So I said, yeah, yeah. And that was the dance magic dance scene. They decided that there weren't mm. creatures in there, and they wanted to fill the you know fill the the room. So I went down for a week's work, and then then they remembered who I was, and they said, "Oh, actually, could you do another couple of weeks helping hands?" And then, you know, I ended up doing three or four months' work on that because it's that thing of you know um, it's not really a skill that you could practice. People say, "How would I get in the movies to be a puppeteer?" I go, "I don't know." But once, <laughs> well, I mean, because I just fell into it, you know. Once, right. once you, once they know you, and they know you, you're reliable. You take orders. You shut up when it's you know busy. Um, you just do what you're gonna do. Um, it's it's a team building effort, and the Muppets were really good at building teams and keeping the energy levels uh, working well. So yeah, it was a shoo-in. Once once I once I turned up at the labyrinth set. Um, you know, I got more jobs, and uh, the credit I get is for the body and legs of the Fari, the the lead singer, Fari mm-hmm. number one. Yeah, Kevin Clash is their best lip sync person. Uh, uh-huh. uh, you know, the guy who does Elmo. Right. And uh, he's doing the head. Dave Barkley again is mm-hmm. b- behind me. I'm doing the body and legs, and Dave's doing the arms and the hands. So it's a three man puppet, which we rehearsed for weeks, and then uh, then they shot the set. Then they covered the set in black velvet covered us in black velvet and we had to uh, do it again and they, they put the two bits of footage together well nowadays wow. that would be easy that would be green screen and all that sort of thing but you know these were real experiments and the reason i'm saying that about the 80s is, is that i'm really proud you know i only worked on those six films but uh it was everyone was doing things that had never been done before so when you were working if you had a bright idea people like jim and frank would would take ideas from people they'd go you know anyone got a great idea how to solve this problem and that's what that's what is relevant to the roger rabbit stuff because again i was in spain uh i was actually living in a up a mountain in spain miles from a phone or anything and I was sent a telegram, which is where when a postman arrives with a little urgent letter thing, you know. And it was Dave Barkley, again, chief puppeteer, saying, uh, we're making a, a film in London. Can you get back here, you know, now? And it was just before Christmas and flying back from Spain 
over the Christmas holidays was quite tricksy. Mm-hmm. And when I got there, he said, uh, it's an animation film. It'll be like shooting the Invisible Man. There, you know, the creatures, there aren't any puppets. <laughs> the creatures aren't really there. And I went, okay, so what are we doing? And he said, well, the creatures interact with real objects. So a cartoon weasel will be carrying a real gun. And that will involve one of us up in the ceiling with two invisible threads holding a Sten gun, you know, a machine gun, whatever you call them these days, automatic rifle, and miming, you know, uh, where the character's going to be holding this real object. And I went, okay, this is a bit like being a magician's assistant. You know, this is all invisible thread. And the reason they'd hired Dave was because the special effects department could do a certain amount of this stuff, but what the puppeteer team needed to do was improvise solutions on the day. So if the director came up with a bright idea, we would have to invent a solution because um, the special effects department works a bit slower than that. You know, they, they, they like to devise things and spend a bit of time developing stuff. So there was a little bit of a competition between the FX department and us. The example that I usually tell people is that they'd made a beautiful mechanical arm that could hold a gun and uh, move around. On the set, the the cartoonist would be there, the guy who was going to do the animation. And he would say, that's fine. I can do that. I can paint over that. Now, in this particular case, he went, that's a bit clunky. You know, it's not it's not a fluid movement. It's not. We need to poke Bob in the chest with the gun. And the FX thing just was not. It was looking too, uh, too, too mechanical. So they called Mike Quinn down and he grabbed a metal coat hanger from his dressing room, trotted down onto the set, opened out the coat hanger, bent it round the handle of the gun, lay on the floor and they go action. And then he pokes Bob in the chest and like that, it's in the can, you know. So that's the one in the movie. And that was that was Mike inventing something on the spot. And we would spend our days like that, uh, mostly on second unit, actually. Quite, sometimes we were on the on the main main uh, stage, but because a lot of our things were kind of ingenious special effects, if possible, they would give them to second unit to do so we could spend more time getting them right. right. Um, and that was a team of six puppeteers, which D- Dave deliberately constructed. You know, he had one that was good at string puppets, one that was good at hand puppets. He hired me because I'm this kind of miscellaneous person. You know, I I, I do a bit of magic, I do a bit of juggling, I do you know so. We we had a lot of fun, um, but we never knew when we went to work what we were doing that day. <laughs> so I'll give you, I mean, it's really silly stuff, you know, uh, when, when Roger's looking the Acme um, factory through the window, mm-hmm. I'm actually lying behind the box he's standing on, wobbling the box. That's crazy. You don't notice the box. Right. It's three in the morning. It was a second unit job. Uh, we were on the night shoot. And I'm lying behind this box with the, the whole film crew out there and all the lighting and everything, uh, trying to creatively wobble a box so that the cartoonist can then draw Re- Roger jumping up and down on it. Wow. And I did actually go out. You know, you, you'd get teased <laughs> by the crew. they go, how much do you get paid? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, anyone could wobble a box. I went, no, 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 no. Because films are very specialised jobs. Everyone has a very specific job to do. Uh, you know, one of, the, one, of the, one of the assistant directors said to me, He's trying to reassure me. He went, no, if, if one of the carpenters was on there, he'd just go bong, 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 bong. You go ba-bong, ba-ba-bong. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Try and reassure me that I'm a creative person. <laughs> right. I, I watched, a, I, I recently watched a documentary about the making of Roger Rabbit, and yeah. they really do highlight kind of this team that Dave put together and just mm-hmm. kind of how it impacted just watching it and you don't even think about it but it makes every shot feel so real in a situation that is obviously very not real so with that being said the work that y'all did was 
paramount to that. Right, I can give you a, t- a perfect example of this. They could easily have painted in this stuff, but they wanted to do it because that's what they were planning. Right. There's an octopus barman. He's on the he's on the screen for seconds. Mm. He's taking a, a dollar bill off something. He's lighting someone's cigarette. He's uh, pouring a drink, you know, because all the tentacles. Right. And we're all in the roof. Um, one person's pouring the drink. I'm lighting the the actress's cigarette. My wow. my two invisible threads are wires. I've got a battery at the top, and mm-hmm. I'm dangling this lighter, and I connect the battery when I t- you know light light the cigarette. Everything in that octopus shot is he's handling real things. <laughs> and, and as I say, there's six puppeteers in the in the ceiling. Uh, uh, they could have just painted that. They didn't have to do it that way. But the challenge was to mix real with cartoon. And we did it down to the, you know, so if you freeze frame now and look at it closely, you'll find it's all real. And that's what's magic about it was um, the, the attention to detail was fabulous. Of course. Uh, well, Mr. Philpot, thank you again so much for, for taking this time and talking to us and telling us these incredible stories. Um, it's really appreciated. Yeah, no problem at all. And that will do it for this episode of Talking Bay 94. Again, I want to thank Mr. Philpot for the time and the stories about one of my favorite characters in Star Wars. For more information and updates about Mr. Philpot's upcoming appearances, check out his website or follow him on Twitter. On our next episode, we talk to the incredible makeup team from Revenge of the Sith, Dave and Lou Elsie. So stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and may the Force be with you.